Well, I grew up in a large family, a very large family. I have 11 sisters and no brothers. <laughs> not making that up. I am the only boy out of 12 kids. Now, my family is not some freak accident of probability run amok. Uh, eight of my 11 sisters were adopted. Uh, but even so, that doesn't change the fact that my dad and I were sorely outnumbered. Uh, on top of my 11 sisters, I also uh, live with my grandma for most of my life. She lived with us for most of my life. Uh, my niece lived with us for a while, and my dog was a girl. So it was a very feminine home. Uh, but wait, there's more. Um, my family was also a foster family, and we specialized in teenage girls. And so what that meant uh, is that we took in teenagers who, for whatever reason, couldn't live with their families. And over the course of my lifetime, uh, over 350 teenage girls stayed in our house from either a few weeks to a few years at a time. Uh, and so th this was obviously a pretty unique uh, situation to grow up with. Uh, usually there are three to five uh, teenage girls there with us on top of whatever you know, Keenan kids were actually in the home uh, at the moment. Uh, our home had five bathrooms and nine bedrooms, which might sound like a big house, but I promise you, it was never spacious. Uh, five bathrooms, that many women, just that's, <laughs> you can imagine. Um, but like I said, my, my family experiences were pretty unique. Uh, people often ask me what it was like growing up in a home like that, and the, the reality is I, I didn't know for a long time uh, that anything was different. You know, it's kind of a, a fish and water kind of situation. Uh, you grow up with something, you just think that that's normal. I actually remember the very first moment that I realized my family is not like all other families. I went over to my friend Pete's house. It was third or fourth grade. This is probably my first sleepover or something. Uh, and I go over to Pete's house, and, and Pete had moved from the Netherlands. And so there were a lot of things about his family that were different than what my family did. Uh, and one of those, I, I figured, uh, was the fact that he had one sister and one brother. Like, who knew you could have two boys in a family? Like, the Dutch, the genius this is amazing. But I remember going over there, and, and when we sat down at dinner, being shocked that there were just six chairs around the table. I thought, where is everybody today, you know? Looked around his house, and I, I was like, where, where do they keep all of your, his sisters? Like, what, what's going on here? And, and I, the moment when it dawned on me that it all clicked together, I, I remember having the thought, you mean to tell me the government doesn't send you a new sister every month? You guys are so weird. Like, Europeans, what are you doing? <laughs> All of my sisters came from really rough situations. And that's how you get into foster care. Every one of them came from a situation of abuse or neglect uh, or the death of their parents. And because of these situations, that usually led to further problems. Uh, they often came from poverty. Uh, they had addictions. They had mental health, mental health issues they were working through. Uh, a lot of my sisters had physical handicaps. Many had criminal records because of the ways they had responded to their family life. A lot of them had been in the foster care system for years, and they had bounced from home to home, picking up new tragedies along the way. And it is not an exaggeration to say that if you can think of something horrible that could happen to a person, I've probably lived with someone who had that happen to them. I've got stories that would keep you up at night. And so from an early age, I was pretty exposed to just how messed up the world is. It actually comes in handy as a pastor. There's hardly anything someone can say to me that can shock me because I've, I've encountered it before. Uh, but I'll be honest, for a long time, most of my growing up, that, that really didn't affect how I viewed God. It didn't really trouble my faith. I believed in God, and, and, and I thought he was good. But that changed when I got older. I, I don't know if I was naive, but when we started uh, adopting uh, my sisters, I, I figured, you know, once they were adopted, well, then, you know, all the bad stuff's over. Like, that's in the past. You know, they're out of the dangerous situation. They've got a stable home. They've got a loving family. They've come to faith in Jesus. Like, you know, they're going to have scars. You know, there's going to be emotions. They're going to work through those things. But, you know, the, the bad stuff is in the past. And I picked up the phone one day, and I heard my mom say, 
last night your sister was raped. What do you do with that? Uh, That event and a few others like it began my first real season of doubt about God. I I just kept thinking, you know, like if I had the power to do something to prevent that, I would have done something. Like I would have done anything to keep that from happening to my sister. And God has all the power in the world. He could have done something, but he didn't. And so I kept asking myself, am I more loving than God? Am I more loving than God? We're in a series called Elephants, the questions we can't ignore. And we have been looking at the most troubling questions that keep people at arm's length from Jesus and from his people. And today we've got one of the big ones. If God is good, why do we suffer? This is one of the oldest and most famous objections to belief in God, the problem of evil. It actually goes back even before Christianity. Uh, The earliest expression we know of uh, of this objection comes from a philosopher named Epicurus who lived over 300 years before Jesus. And here's how he put it. He said, is God willing to prevent evil but not able? Then he's not omnipotent. Is he able but not willing? Then he's malevolent. Is he both able and willing? Well, then where does evil come from? Is he neither able nor willing, then why call him God? The objection really hasn't changed much since that time. I've heard it summed up this way. If God were good and he could, he would. But he doesn't, so either he can't or he won't or he isn't. And it's not just the the logic of this that feels compelling to people. It's an argument you can feel, isn't it? Usually, when people talk about this, they pull out one of the really big tragedies, you know, the Holocaust or Rwanda or that tsunami back in 2004 that killed a quarter million people in a matter of minutes. Or they talk about disease or hunger or poverty. And any one of these would make us say, if there is a good God, how can that possibly be? How can that possibly be in a world where this can happen? But often... The way that the objection really hits home is not with the large-scale suffering out there. It is with suffering that comes up close and personal. When you are in pain, someone you love is in pain. Because that's when you ask the question, am I more loving than God? The most interesting place where we find the problem of evil expressed is actually in the Bible. And it doesn't come up as a, a philosophical argument. It comes up in the form of a prayer a prayer directed to God. The book of Psalms is a collection of Hebrew poetry. It was the songbook of ancient Israel. These are God-given lyrics that, that have been sung in worship services by faithful Jews and Christians for centuries, for thousands of years. And the problem of suffering and evil comes up a surprising amount of time in these worship songs. Let me, let me give you just a few examples. I, I kind of pulled these out almost at random. Psalm 10. Why, Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Psalm 44, awake, Lord, why do you sleep? Rouse yourself, do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face and forget our misery and oppression? Psalm 88, I cry to you for help, Lord. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. Why, Lord, do you reject me and hide your face from me? It's really important that we we find these in the Psalms, because it it tells us a couple of things. One thing it tells us is that this is a legitimate question. 
We are not uh, stupid or wrong to be bothered by the, the problem of evil and suffering. It's totally appropriate. And what it also tells us is that wrestling this, with this question doesn't need to be a hindrance to having a close relationship with God. In fact, these authors, the ones who wrote the Psalms, are some of the most godly people who ever lived. And so maybe the fact that we're troubled by evil and by suffering is actually a sign of maturity. We're taking seriously the things we ought to. And it doesn't make it easy, but this does give us permission to wrestle with this question. And so that's what we're going to do today. Before we get too far, I want to tell you what I am not going to try to do today and what I am going to try to do today. What I'm not going to try to do today is prove to you that Christianity is true. Okay, there are lots of great arguments for the truth of Christianity, but that's not what I'm going to try to do right now. What I want to do right now is simply show that this objection to the Christian story doesn't hold. Uh, to do that, what I, what I want to do is actually have you do a thought experiment. Whether you believe in Christianity or not, I want you to imagine that the Christian story actually is true and ask the question, if this story were true, would there be space in this story both for a good God and the presence of evil and suffering in the world? Because that's the tension. These two things can't exist at the same time, it seems. But if we can show that the Christian story can't account for both of those, then the objection, the problem of evil, doesn't stand. You might still be troubled by evil, you might still have doubts about Christianity, but you won't be able to use this one as your objection. So here's how we're going to approach this. First thing I'm going to do is I'm going to give you some of the most common answers to the question, why would God allow suffering in his world? And what we're going to find is there are some good answers to that question, some good solid reasons why God might allow evil. But what we're also going to find about those answers is that even though they're helpful, they don't fully satisfy. And I actually think there's a good reason for that. We're going to talk about that. But then what we're going to do is we're actually going to look at the story of the Bible, the, the, the gospel, and see how it responds to the problem of evil. And I'm going to try to show you that even though the story doesn't give us the answers that we want, it actually gives us the answers that we need. So let's start. Let, let's talk about three attempts at answers to this question. There, there's actually a technical term for the question, uh, uh, the answer to a question uh, of the problem of evil. It's the term theodicy. And theodicy basically means a defense of God. And almost every theodicy basically works the same way. It's got to try to answer the question, what is valuable enough to be worth the possibility of evil? It's basically a cost-benefit analysis. But what would make God say, I want this so much in my world that I'm willing to tolerate the presence of evil? And so each theodicy tries to answer that question. And by far, the most common answer to that question is this. God permits evil because it makes goodness possible. He permits evil because it makes goodness possible. When you think about it, it's, it's fairly straightforward, you know. Uh, for goodness to really be good, it has to be chosen freely. It, it can't be forced on people. People have to want to do it. Uh, they, they, they need to mean it when they do that. I mean, you can ask Siri to give you a compliment, and she will, but it doesn't mean as much as when it's coming from a friend, right? Like, freedom is what it takes for something to be truly good. And, and so that's why God says uh, he's going to tolerate the possibility of evil because he knows, you know, some people are going to uh, choose evil, but he also knows it creates the possibility that people will choose good. And there will be genuine love, uh, and there will be real relationship, and it's worth that possibility. So maybe that's why God allows evil. Now, I think this is a pretty compelling answer, but it leaves me with some questions. The, the biggest one is this. Is freedom always worth it? I mean, you and I know intuitively that there are times when sometimes it's better to take away someone's freedom than to give them freedom. It's the reason we put kids in timeout, or teenagers get grounded, or we arrest criminals. It's the reason someone needs a license to drive a car or practice medicine. Like, freedom is good, but we're willing to take it away from someone if they're going to use their freedom to do serious harm to another person. 
I mean, the entire world amassed to take away Hitler's freedom when he used it to kill millions of people. Why wouldn't God do the same? And so the freedom answer is pretty good, but it leaves something to be desired. Another common answer to this question of why God allows suffering is because suffering leads to growth. Suffering leads to growth. And the idea here is that while God made the world good, he didn't make the world complete. This is actually true. When you read uh, the stories in Genesis, you realize that God made the Garden of Eden in just one place, and he said to human beings, he said, go out into this wild world that I made. It it is good, but it it still needs to be developed and cultivated. You need to draw all the potential out of it. So go out into the world and make something of it. The same is true for human beings. If you think about it for a second, you you realize this is obvious. We We aren't born as adults. We're born as babies. We learn and we develop and we grow. It's a process of coming to maturity. So the question is, why didn't God just make us at the the finished state? Why didn't he start us at the end? It's because there are certain qualities that can only come about in a world where where suffering and challenge are possible. You you can't be generous in a world where everybody already has everything that they need. You can't be compassionate if no one ever hurts. You can't persevere if you never have to do anything hard. To become a genuinely good person, you've got to make hard choices and you've got to risk pain. And so the idea is that God didn't make the universe like a cruise ship where everybody would sat around around the pool and they ate appetizers because he knew that wouldn't grow us as people. Instead, God made the world like a gym. It's full of equipment that will strengthen our moral muscles. So when people say, you know, why was that snake even in the garden? That's sort of like asking, why why is there a treadmill or a bench press in the gym? To put it another way, uh, we're not God's pets that he pampers. We're his apprentices that he trains. And so God allows evil and suffering to be possible so that we will grow. Now, there's some sense in that, but does it really satisfy? Because if God's goal is to grow us through suffering, it's really only working part of the time, right? Like, it is absolutely true. I, I don't know if I've ever met a, a person who is a truly good person who didn't have as part of their story an experience of suffering or pain that led to their growth, that was part of their path to maturity. But for every person that I know uh, who grew through their pain, I also know people who were crushed by their pain. Every person who was refined by their suffering, I also know someone whose soul was withered by it, whose heart was hardened by it, who turned away from God because of their pain. When you're exercising, resistance can build muscles, but it can also injure you. What doesn't kill you makes you stronger, but what kills you, kills you. And so while I do think that God uses suffering to grow us, I think that is true, it is not the most satisfying explanation for why God allowed evil and suffering to be in the world to begin with. A third most common answer that people give as to why God allows suffering is that it, makes, it puts God's glory on display. It puts God's glory on display. According to Scripture, one of God's primary goals in everything that he does is to put his own glory on display. Now, you might hear that and say, well, that sounds really arrogant, like no one likes an attention hog. But when you think about who God is, it actually becomes a good thing. You realize it's, it's the most important thing he could do. If God is, by definition, the source of goodness and life and beauty and joy and love and all of these good things, the very best thing he can do is to put himself at the center of everything, to show off all of those qualities. What is going to bring people the most delight? Seeing and enjoying who God is. So in order to do that, God has actually designed a world where he could put his glory on full display. Now, there are some aspects of God's character that are much easier to see in a world where suffering and evil are possible. His justice his mercy, his power to redeem and restore. You don't get to see these things where nothing goes wrong. Like a tightrope walker might be just as good at 10 feet above the ground, but at 100 feet above the ground with a blindfold on, it's really obvious how good they are. 
And so God designed a world where this was possible so he could show his glory more clearly. And I get that. I think that's part of what God is doing in his actions. But it's not really a satisfying explanation. It sort of feels like a doctor who's really good at setting bones, and so he lets you uh, fall off a ladder and break your leg so that he can show off his skills. Uh, Wouldn't it have just been better for him to say, hey, the ladder's wobbly, you might not want to go up on that. And so I get the reason, it just doesn't satisfy. So those are the, the three most popular answers to this question, and they've all got some merit, but in the end, they only get us so far. And some of you might be thinking, well, there's a reason for that, Clayton. It's because there isn't a good God. Like, that's the whole point. That's the, the, what the objection means. You cannot come with a good explanation for this because God doesn't really exist. But before you go there, let, let me ask you to consider two possibilities. First one is this. It is worth noting that it might be a little presumptuous of us to think that we're going to know all of God's reasons for the things that he does. After all, we are talking about an infinite intelligence here. It is quite possible uh, that we are in the same position that my 10-month-old is uh, with my wife and I. Uh, there are things we do 100 times a day uh, that he has no idea why we're doing it, and it freaks him out. Uh, just think about how terrifying it would be to have your diaper changed, okay? What would you do if a 30-foot creature picked you up, put you on a two-story ledge, and then wiped your butt with a wet rag? Like, you'd scream your head off too, you know? In the same way that my son can't understand most of the things that we do to him or do around him, it's quite possible that God couldn't even explain the reasons he has for what he does, that we wouldn't even be able to process it. And even if we could understand the reasons, there might actually be a good reason to think that he doesn't want to share them with us right now. Those of you who've been in leadership positions, maybe you've been in a situation where you had information that not everybody else did, and you had to make a really difficult decision, a decision you knew other people wouldn't like, but you weren't able to explain the things that you knew to everybody that was going to be affected. It wasn't appropriate or helpful for some reason. And so you had to bear the brunt of saying, I know they're not going to like this, but I'm going to make a decision that I know is going to be the best anyway, even though I can't explain it to them. That might be the sort of situation we're in with God. We might not be privy to the information that would make sense out of it. But just because we can't explain why God would allow evil doesn't mean he doesn't have reasons for it. And the fact that we can think of a, a handful of pretty good contenders that people have taken pretty seriously over the ages, it, it might suggest that if, if there was an all-wise, all-knowing being, he would have good reasons too. Another thing to consider is this. Maybe it wouldn't actually be good for us to have the answer to this question right now. Because what would happen if we really knew why evil was here? We might get comfortable with it. We might say, well, there's a reason for it. I know why it's here. So I guess it's not that big of a deal. But here's the thing. We are not meant to understand evil. We are meant to oppose evil, the, the evil out there and the evil in here. God wants us to react strongly to evil. It's not supposed to make sense to us. We're supposed to see it and say, why is that happening? Why is that here? This is absurd. It's supposed to be offensive and make us angry. And knowing why God permitted it might actually take the edge off for us. I mean, we're apathetic enough as it is about evil. We don't need another excuse. And so it seems plausible to me that a good God might have a reason to allow evil, but he doesn't want to tell us it until he rids the world of evil once and for all. So where does that leave us? Are we just supposed to throw up our hands and say, well, I guess I'm not going to ask that question? Or does God actually give us another way of making sense out of evil and suffering in the world? I think he does. Uh, the Bible never gives us a, a reason for evil and suffering, but it doesn't ignore the question. In fact, the entire Bible, from page one to the very end, is God's response to evil and suffering. So while the Bible doesn't give, it, give us answers, it does give us a more satisfying story. 
If you've been around Christ community for a while, you have probably heard us say that the Christian story, the gospel, can be told in four parts. It's a four-act play. And these are those four acts. I'm actually going to have us read those together. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. And each of these four acts of the gospel actually tell us something about God's response to evil. And so I want to walk through these four acts and see what we can learn from them. The first act of the gospel is creation. The the story begins with God and God alone. According to the Bible, he is the source of everything that there is. And that's sort of what makes the problem of evil a problem. If everything comes from a good God, why is there anything that isn't good? But according to the Bible, that's how things were at the beginning. Genesis 1.31 says, God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. Very good. No evil. And that means that whatever we say about where evil comes from, one thing we have to say loud and clear is this. This is not the way it's supposed to be. This is not the way it's supposed to be. The presence of evil is not God's design or desire for the world. God made the world very good. Now, now why is it helpful to know that? Because it explains why evil feels like evil to us. You ever ask yourself why you feel like certain things aren't the way they're supposed to be? Think about that. When you say this isn't supposed to be this way, you're implying some kind of intention or design, a purpose to things. You're assuming that there is something transcendent, something beyond this broken world that we can use to assess whether or not the world is the way it is supposed to be. If there is no God, how do we even know that something is or isn't good? I love Calvin and Hobbes. Anybody a fan of the Calvin and Hobbes comic strip? All right. <laughs> well, as a kid, I read the, all of these comics dozens of times. I've got all sorts of beat-up, dog-eared copies of these books. And I actually think that explains a lot of the reasons why I am the way that I am. Uh, one of my favorite things from Calvin and Hobbes is the, the sport Calvin Ball. Okay, Calvin Ball. Uh, After a disastrous experience playing baseball, Calvin decides uh, he doesn't want anything to do with organized sports, so he invents a disorganized sport. It's called Calvin Ball, and there's only one rule. Uh, You can't play the game the same way twice. All the other rules in the game are made up by the players in the moment as the game is going along. And so it makes for some pretty silly gameplay, but it also means that every single game ends up becoming an argument at some point. Uh, Because Calvin will say, you can't do that. And then Hobbes will say, well, I just made up a rule that says that I can. And they'll argue back and forth, making new rules and and debating with each other. But neither player can say, you know, that's not how it's supposed to be in this game. There's no referee. There's no rule book. There's nothing outside the game at the moment in which they can say, this is how it ought to be played. If there is no God, or God is not good... How can we look at sickness and and abuse and injustice and violence and say that is wrong? It's not supposed to be that way. Famous author C.S. Lewis was an atheist for the first half of his life, but then he became a Christian. And this is what he said about this. He said, my argument against God was that the universe seems so cruel and unjust. But how would I got this idea of just and unjust? A man doesn't call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. What was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? If there's no God, the best you can say about a situation is, I don't like that, or my group doesn't like that. But what happens when some other person or group comes along and say, well, we like that? Well, if there's no God, the act of declaring things good and evil is just a game of Calvin Ball. We're just making it up as we go along. And wouldn't you say that your sense of right and wrong is more than just a preference for things that you enjoy and don't enjoy? You think it's wrong. It shouldn't be this way. According to the Christian story, the reason you feel that way 
is because God designed you for a perfect world, and this isn't the way things are supposed to be. So what went wrong? This is a second act of the gospel story, the fall. Although God made the world good, evil entered the world when the first humans rejected God and God's calling to fill the world with his goodness. Instead, what we did is we used God's good world in twisted ways. Uh, Evil, it turns out, is the bending and the breaking of good things that God has made. It's using good things for purposes that they weren't intended for. So we use power for domination rather than service. We use sex to give ourselves pleasure rather than giving ourselves away in commitment. We use money to secure our own happiness rather than to secure the happiness of other people. Evil is a distortion of good gifts. And let's be honest about this. This is not just something that Adam and Eve did way back when. It's not just something that some exceptionally messed up people have done throughout history. This is something that we do every single day. Think about where most of the suffering in life comes from. It comes from the selfishness of others. It comes from the things that they say behind your back or the things that they say to your face. It comes out of people's envy and arrogance. It comes out of their betrayals and their distance. It comes out of their abuse and their apathy. The most painful things that happen in life are the result of other human beings. And this is how Paul describes what humans have become. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness evil, greed, and depravity. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They're gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Aren't the things on that list the, the sources of the greatest pain in people's lives? And don't we all do some of the things on those lists? Where does the suffering in the world come from? Well, part of the answer is, it comes from me. And it comes from you. And so we may not know where all the suffering in the world comes from, but we do know that we are part of the problem. And for sure, there are things that fall outside of human decision, things like diseases and disasters, but even with all of those things, most of the suffering is the result of human behavior. And that means when we ask the question, why doesn't God do anything about the evil and suffering in the world? We've got to turn the question around and say, why don't I do anything about the evil in the world? And we've got to remember that if God were to rid the world of evil, he'd have to get rid of us too. And so we can still ask the question, God, why do you allow evil and suffering? But we've got to do so in a humble way since we've contributed to it. Thankfully, the story doesn't end there. The third act of the gospel is redemption. Redemption. This is where Jesus shows up. God himself steps into the play and becomes the main character. And he doesn't come as a hero who exists above the fray. He jumps right in to the mess and the misery of life. This is how the prophet Isaiah describes Jesus. He was despised, rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. It's really funny when people raise the objection to Christianity. They say, well, you know, what about all of those people who are innocent victims of suffering? 
As if that would come to us as a surprise. Like, oh, I never really thought about innocent victims of suffering, even though the central event of our faith is the suffering of an innocent man. In fact, our our whole belief system hangs on the idea that God himself became an innocent victim. And now you may not believe that this story is true. You might think that Jesus was just a man, but I would ask you, for just a moment, imagine what it would mean if it were true. What would it mean if Jesus were God? I'll tell you. It means that God was born into poverty. That God was a refugee at two years of age. That God was rejected by his family. That God got sick and hungry and tired. That God was homeless. That God was lonely. That God lost both friends and family to death. It means that God was betrayed by the people closest to him. That he was persecuted for his beliefs. That he was the victim of an unjust government. That he was accused of crimes that he didn't commit. That he was given a rigged trial. God was mocked. God was beaten and whipped within an inch of his life. God was stripped naked and paraded through town. God was nailed to a stake of wood and left there to suffocate to death. And God experienced the absence of God. If Jesus really was God, it means that God himself showed up and suffered the worst of human experiences. And this turns the problem of evil on its head. Because we might not know why God allows suffering, but we do know that God did not exempt himself from suffering. It's sort of like a situation when the boss says, everybody's going to get a pay cut in the company, but then he takes the same pay cut himself. Or your coach says, you're going to have to run extra laps, do a a harder workout, and then he runs those laps right alongside the team. You might not enjoy the experience. You might not understand the decision. You might not uh, uh, like the decision. But what you do is you trust the person who made the decision because they're experiencing the suffering with you. Before the world was made, when God was deciding to make a world where he knew that people would rebel, that creation would break, and and that life would be full of pain and heartache, he decided at that point that he would also have the worst pain and the deepest heartache. We are not more loving than God. Uh, Christians don't claim to know the reason for suffering in the world. What we claim is that the guy on the throne was the guy on the cross, and that the hands that hold the world are hands that are scarred with nails. And I don't know about you, but I can trust someone like that. There's one final act in the gospel story. It's the act of restoration. It's when what Jesus did on the cross and in the resurrection gets applied to people and to the world. And ultimately what this will mean is that Jesus is going to return and he's going to right every wrong and he's going to recreate everything that was broken. Here's how this is described in one of the last chapters of the Bible in the book of Revelation. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. And he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Now again, you might not believe that this is true. Maybe it sounds like a fairy tale that we tell to ourselves just so we can cope with the pain, and and maybe it is. But just for a minute, imagine what it would mean if this was really going to happen. How would that change your experience of suffering here and now? 
I was actually talking uh, about this with our speaker from last week, Jay Warner Wallace. And he pointed out that even in a person's own life, uh, suffering becomes less and less of a problem for them the more time you have after the suffering ends. So for example, a child who has a birth defect and it requires a very painful procedure at the age of five might suffer a lot while it's happening. But 30, 50, 70 years later, they can't really remember the pain and it hasn't affected their, their overall happiness in life. If there is no God and there is no heaven, no afterlife, it means that all you've got at best is 100 years or so. And that means the stakes are really high for maximizing the pleasure and minimizing the pain in that 100 years. But let's imagine that you had 1,000 years. In the first 100 years, we're going to be full of suffering like a human life is now. But the last 900 years, we're going to be perfect bliss. Would that change how you felt about that life? Or what if the life was 100 years of suffering and a million years of bliss? Or a billion years of bliss? What if you had 100 years of suffering and an eternity of never-ending bliss? Would that change how you felt about the significance of your suffering now? Some people are going to say, well, no. No, that doesn't change it. No amount of joy in eternity can justify any suffering in this life. C.S. Lewis said something about this too. He said, that is what mortals misunderstand. They say of some temporal suffering, no future bliss can make, make up for it. Not knowing that heaven, once attained, will work backwards and turn even that agony into a glory. Maybe you've encountered a phenomenon kind of like this. Uh, maybe you, you have an experience in your life uh, that was really frustrating at the time, really, really obnoxious at the time, but now when you tell that story to your friends and your family, you laugh at it. Like, it's a funny story you tell. You know, that time when the car broke down in the middle of nowhere, or you got lost on a camping trip, or you, you were puking your guts out, or whatever. It was a situation that, at the time, you hated, and you would never choose to go back into it. But something over time has changed. From a distance, uh, knowing that it came to a good place in the end, it doesn't trouble you. And in fact, the memory of it actually brings you some kind of joy, some kind of pleasure. Now, I'm not saying that we're going to laugh at all the tragedies of earth when we get to heaven. I'm not saying that. But maybe something kind of like that phenomenon will actually happen to our stories of pain. But what if heaven actually does work backwards and turn our agony into glory? Think about it this way. In heaven, the, the scars on Jesus' hands are no longer signs of, of defeat and suffering. They're signs of victory Enjoy. What if something like that is going to happen to all of our scars and all of our wounds? Uh, what if, in the words of the great theologian Samwise Gamgee, everything sad is coming untrue? Uh, the presence of evil and suffering in the world should trouble us. It should unsettle us. We should never be comfortable with it. But if the gospel really is true, there is reason to hope that one day all of it will be made right. But between now and then, what do we do when we are suffering or someone we love is suffering? Let me give you just two practical suggestions. The first is this. Do not suffer alone. Do not suffer alone. This is one of the reasons God made the church. We have got to be there for each other. If you're part of this church, I want you to think, is there anybody in your community group who's going through a hard time right now? Is there anybody that you serve with on a regular basis and they're in a tough place? Someone you've met around here that's hurting, do you see them? Reach out to them, bear their burdens. That's what Jesus calls us to. If you're here right now and you are hurting, uh, we want to walk alongside you. Uh, well, one of the ways that we try to do that is actually through our ministry care night. 
this collection of workshops and classes and groups especially that support people as they're going through difficult situations. We actually have this four-week session of Care Night starting this Tuesday. It's a perfect time to jump in and get a, a taste of what it is. You can check that out more on our website. The, the other practical suggestion I have for coping with pain is to learn how to lament. This is really important. This is one of the most helpful things I've ever discovered uh, about handling the tragedy that I encounter. Lament is simply praying our pain. It's letting the problem of evil drive us towards God rather than away from God. And like we've seen, the Psalms are full of laments. And so what I'd like to do uh, is actually end this teaching time by having us uh, pray a prayer of lament together. Uh, we are going to pray Psalm 13. This is kind of my go-to lament when I don't know where else to turn and I'm, I'm uh, hurting. This is where I go. And what we're going to do is, as we pray this, I want you to uh, bring to mind a painful situation you're going through right now. And I want you to think about that as we pray. Or if you're in a, a season of life where you're like, you know, most things are going pretty well, I want you to think about someone around you uh, and their pain, the suffering that you've seen in a friend's life, and, and pray this prayer on their behalf in solidarity with them. There, there are three sections to this psalm, and we're going to pray each section, and uh, afterwards I'm going to give us just a, a few moments of silence for us to uh, reflect and express in our heart what we're feeling to God. I'm going to pray the parts in white for this prayer, and I want you to pray the parts in yellow. How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer, O Lord, my God. And my enemy will say, I have overcome him. But I trust in your unfailing love. I will sing the Lord's praise. Amen.